The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, another Halloween, another candy tampering panic. And while these panics rarely, if ever, bear fruit, poisoned candy and concerns around it have a longer history than you might suspect. Plus, a voter fraud scandal has rocked the wholesome Fat Bear Week contest. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It's that time of year. The leaves are beginning to change colors. Pumpkin spice everything is filling the grocery store end caps. And local authorities are telling people about the latest trend in Halloween candy tampering. Last year, it was premium-priced THC candies designed to look like actual bags of Starburst and Sour Patch Kids. This year, rainbow-colored fentanyl. Like the THC candies, the product does actually exist, but the idea that any drug dealer would be just giving away mass amounts of their product to random small kids is a bit hard to believe. Selling fentanyl in cool-looking colors to attract teenagers and younger adults? Yes, it could be, and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency has reported that that's exactly what's happening, although other drug experts say the color coding is to differentiate product types and levels, not to attract teenagers. But the pills are not being handed out for free in trick-or-treat bags to elementary schoolers, as Senator Chuck Schumer and others have been claiming. Or at least there is no evidence for this, and the logic doesn't quite add up when you think about it. How would a first grader return as a paying customer for more? Now, just to be clear, though, fentanyl is incredibly dangerous, and overdoses and deaths linked to other drugs being laced with fentanyl have been on the rise. According to the DEA, in 2021, 67% of drug overdoses and drug poisonings involved synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Usually packaged to look like plain prescription pills, or again laced with another drug, the new so-called rainbow fentanyl, which the DEA alleges is also being called Skittles or Sweet Tarts, is made to look pretty similar to the latter. But again, there has been no evidence these pills are actually being given to kids or designed to do so. Quoting Salon, Dr. Nabarun Desgupta, a pharmaceutical scientist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, says the DEA's framing was so divorced from any reality of what drug markets are actually like, it was almost laughable that our country's top drug enforcement folks are so out of touch with what's happening on the ground. Claire Zagorski, a licensed paramedic, program coordinator, and harm reduction instructor for the FARM program at the University of Texas at Austin, described the DEA announcement as old recycled drug propaganda that echoes the perennial myth that Halloween candy might be spiked with illicit narcotics, end quote. 
The propaganda side of it comes into play when, as Dr. Ryan Marino points out, the panic sparked by the claim leads to legislators like Senator Schumer asking for an additional $290 million in funding for the agency. And when the claim hinges on allegations of undocumented people coming over the border to poison our kids, playing into anti-immigrant sentiments just ahead of the election. Now, I did a whole segment on this last year, link in the show notes if you want to listen, but I will say it again, there has never actually been a case of a stranger tampering with a kid's Halloween candy. Of all the alleged cases that researchers and federal agencies have investigated, only three actually happened that we know of. But two of those were kids being intentionally or accidentally poisoned by family members and it being blamed on trick-or-treat candy from a stranger. And the third was a stranger putting needles into chocolate, but just one teenager got a few pricks on their lips before the man was caught. And honestly, I would want to do a little bit more research into that alleged case anyways. Now, there are also broader cases of non-Halloween-related poisoning, like the Tylenol murders in Chicago in 1982, which did actually happen, as well as other tampering myths that decidedly did not. On a recent episode of the American Hysteria podcast, host Chelsea Weber-Smith gave a few explanations for how these stories get started. Sometimes it's teenagers making things up and adults, especially in the media, believing it without actually checking. Other times it's adults making things up to try to get payouts from lawsuits. And sometimes it's paranoia making individuals believe threats that don't exist. So Weber Smith gave the example of one FBI investigation in which numerous people had been mistaking crystallized sugar for glass and bits of wheat for wood chips. And that paranoia is almost understandable when you think about how frequently stories like these get run on the news. As John Oliver pointed out on his most recent episode of Last Week Tonight, crime reporting on the news in the U.S. absolutely ballooned starting in the 1970s, when producers realized how cheap it was to make segments about local crime and how much viewers would eat it up. The 70s also happens to be when one of the first major newspaper stories about trick-or-treat candy tampering appeared in the New York Times. Paranoia was really ramping up in that era in the U.S. in the lead-up to the satanic panic. Again, you can hear more about that in some of the cases I just alluded to in my segment from last year on candy tampering, but right now I want to take it back even further. But before I do, a word from today's sponsors. Okay, so I mentioned the beginning of this flavor of trick-or-treat candy tampering paranoia from roughly the satanic panic onwards in the U.S., but more or less justified fear around tainted food goes back a bit further. On that American Hysteria episode, host Weber Smith brought up some excellent historical context that I don't usually hear in this discussion. They explained how paranoia about tainted food goes back to the Industrial Revolution, when people began increasingly eating food that had not been made by themselves or people close to them in the community, when it started coming from factories, and there were all kinds of new foods being sold to them, ones with ingredients that some people had never heard of, and which in many cases really shouldn't have been consumed by humans. So in that spirit, I want to share an older story with you, one of true-to-life tainted candy from October of 1858. 
That's when candy salesman William Hardacre sold five pounds of black and white striped peppermint candies called humbugs to the people of Bradford, England. Tons of people in town visited his candy stall in the market that day, perhaps purchasing more than usual, since Hardacre had marked the price of the candies down, a discount for the slight discoloration in that batch, according to Atlas Obscura, who shared this story as part of their Fright Club series last year. That was on October 30th. And by the next morning, Halloween, although it wouldn't have been celebrated quite as such in England at the time, two children in Bradford were dead. Now, at first, Atlas Obscura points out, no one was too suspicious of the deaths because children unfortunately died with relative frequency in that era due to disease, especially cholera. But then two more children were found dead, and their father made the connection to the peppermint humbugs. Police went to investigate Hardacre, who had sold the candies at the market, only to find him, like so many people all over town that day, violently ill. However the candies had become poisoned, Hardacre had not done it himself. Now here's a quick thing that you should know about the state of food in mid-19th century England, quoting Atlas Obscura. In Victorian England, it wouldn't have required a giant leap of imagination to suspect poisoning. Lots of things were poisonous, says Laura Sellers, curator at the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds. At the time, it wasn't uncommon for arsenic to be present in wallpaper, dress fabric, and even sprinkled about as a household cleaner. Poison was also considered the murderer's weapon of choice, adds Sellers. Arsenic was easy to buy, tasteless, and odorless, and its effects after ingestion could often be attributed to illness, end quote. Candies, which were marketed in bright, exciting colors and flavors to children, were particularly susceptible to being filled with all kinds of experimental and barely edible ingredients. In the case of these peppermint humbugs, the recipe called for a mixture of sugar, gum, water, peppermint oil, and a sort of gypsum powder called daft. That was used to replace some of the sugar, thereby bringing down the costs of production, sellers told Atlas Obscura. Bulking agents like daft were fully legal at the time and quite common, especially in candy to combat the high cost of sugar. But Hardacre, who sold the peppermint humbugs, hadn't made the candies. That had been done by Joseph Neal, a confectionery wholesaler. Earlier that month, Neal had sent an employee to pick up ingredients from a druggist. The druggist that day was ill, so an inexperienced apprentice was left in charge. And from bed, the druggist told his apprentice where to locate the 12 pounds of daft that Neal's assistant had been instructed to collect. The apprentice went to the container in the corner of the shop that he'd been directed to and procured 12 pounds of the white powder for Neil's assistant. The assistant returned with the powder, and one of Neil's employees added all of it to 40 pounds of peppermint humbug mixture. As you have likely put together by this point, the apprentice had gone to the wrong corner of the store. Instead of 12 pounds of a bulking agent, he had sold Neil's assistant 12 pounds of arsenic trioxide, and all of it had gone into the peppermint candies. Each individual candy had enough arsenic in it to kill a grown man. Town officials spread the word about the poisoned candy as quickly as they could, but tragically, seven adults and 13 children still died, with hundreds more becoming severely ill. The drugstore apprentice, the druggist, and Joseph Neal, the wholesaler, were all charged with manslaughter, but they were acquitted just a few months later, 
mostly because the prosecution couldn't prove they had actually broken any laws. But this case contributed to the enaction of the Pharmacy Act of 1868, which introduced strict guidelines for the packaging, labeling, and selling of poisonous substances. The act no doubt saved countless lives, but dangerous ingredients in candies and other foods persisted through the century and into the next. Even since more formal regulations were introduced in the 20th century in the UK, the US, and other places, dangerous ingredients do persist. Less than being concerned about strangers tampering with individual products, Atlas Obscura suggests food and pharmaceutical contamination as a result of carelessness, cost-cutting, and a lack of regulation continues to be the bigger problem. And that, to me, is what a lot of the trick-or-treat candy tampering boils down to. On the one hand, it's a good reminder in general to stay vigilant about what we buy and what we put into our bodies or allow our kids and loved ones to eat. But on the other hand, the way these stories are blown out of proportion or embellished with untrue, often prejudiced details can sometimes distract from the real problems and the real solutions that are out there. For example, given the relative non-existence of trick-or-treat candy tampering, but the genuine and tragically widespread reality of opioid overdose, American Hysteria host Weber Smith recommends that people carry treatment like Narcan with them just in case they're ever in a position to save a life, and then offers this reframing, quote, "'Strangers can be killers once in a while, but at the same time, strangers can save each other's lives.'" if we're willing to look past myths and urban legends and into common sense practices for addressing opioid abuse disorder and overdose, end quote. But I will also add this addendum. With how many years all these urban legends have been around, it seems odd to me that there wouldn't be copycats in some form. You know, I can't quite think of one that would really make sense, but on some scale, could some bad actor give it a shot and manage to harm at least one kid before they're caught? I guess so. So personally, I would say some level of caution is merited by parents when trick-or-treating. You know, maybe stick mostly to houses and establishments you're familiar with, and the general glance for any already open treats is probably not a bad idea. But it's worth being just as diligent about media literacy and interrogating these claims as you are about checking for suspicious-looking candy on Halloween. Well, continuing the we-can't-have-nice-things theme of the day, apparently Fat Bear Week was rocked by voter fraud. Voting for the bear at Katmai National Park in Alaska who has packed on the most pounds to prepare for winter hibernation and also won the hearts of viewers of the 24-7 live bear cam will end tonight. But because even online brackets celebrating the natural world can't escape scandal these days, Kat May announced over the weekend that, for the first time in eight years, Fat Bear Week fell victim to ballot stuffing. They tweeted on Sunday, quote, Like bears stuff their face with fish, our ballot box too has been stuffed. It appears someone has decided to spam the Fat Bear Week poll. But fortunately, it's easy for us to tell which votes are fraudulent and we have discarded the fake votes. End quote. 
Amber Kraft, Interpretation and Education Program Manager for the National Park Service, explained to Rolling Stone that Bear Number 435, nicknamed Holly, had received over 9,000 votes in a short period of time coming from fake email addresses from several different IP addresses in an apparent attempt to allow Holly to move forward in the bracket ahead of competitor 747. Quoting Rolling Stone, It was the speediest and most significant comeback the NPS had seen in a fat bear face-off, and it immediately drew suspicion. Filtering out the votes from those handful of IPs confirmed that 747 had bested 435, who nonetheless, to her credit, was 2019's Fat Bear Week champion. On further review, none of the previous rounds bore signs of suspicious activity, and NPS has now added a CAPTCHA to its system in order to create another barrier to stop fraudulent voting. End quote. All in all, not a huge scandal, but still a little disappointing to hear about unsavory behavior from what Rolling Stone describes as one of the most wholesome, innocent traditions on the internet. And to that point, Kraft from the National Park Service also emphasized to Rolling Stone how, in their eyes, all the bears are winners. Kraft said, quote, Bears get fat to survive, and the health of Katmai's ecosystem, as demonstrated by the sustained run of salmon, clean water, and thriving flora and fauna, enables their survival. We hope that the awareness that Fat Bear Week brings will grow into caring and action in whatever way makes the most sense for each individual. End quote. See? innocent, and entirely wholesome. As of recording, the competition is still on between 747 and 901, but those of you listening in the future may now know which bear succeeded to become the favorite of 2022. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. 